Who has access to passports and who can fly across borders with relative ease? And what people have to risk their lives in order to cross lines? And what would be a remedy to that? In today's Border Chronicle, we welcome geographer Joseph Nevins to discuss all of this. Joe is the author of two very important books on border and immigration policing. One is titled Operation Gatekeeper and Beyond, The War on Quote-Unquote Illegals and the Remaking of the U.S.-Mexico Boundary. And the other is titled Dying to Live, a story of U.S. immigration in an age of global apartheid. He is a professor at Vassar College. I have known Joe now for a decade, and I owe a lot to him. I owe a lot for his insight, his wisdom, and his scholarship. He has been a mentor to me over these years. And so please sit back and join us in this conversation as we look at the global border apparatus, talk about global apartheid and the right to the world, and discuss what those, as Joe puts it, lines of life and death really mean. I just want to jump right into it. Um, Throughout your work, especially your work looking at borders, you have written and thought about extensively this term, or maybe I wouldn't wouldn't even say it's a term, reality um, that you call or and others call global apartheid. And I'm wondering if you could explain what that means in today's context and in terms of borders. Let me just step back a bit uh, for you know those who might be listening or reading us. Uh, who weren't alive during the 80s and 90s or were very young during the time. You know, the term apartheid um, comes out of South Africa. Apartheid was a system invented by the white minority government of South Africa in 1948. You know, apartheid was a a state-sanctioned, very violent system of uh, formalized racial segregation one of the key components was something called the pass laws. And the way we might think about the pass laws, it was a sort of a form of internal passport. Uh, black people and people of color, uh, as they were referred to in South Africa, um, were uh, required to carry these passports. And this, again, would determine where they could, they could be at particular times of the day, where they could live, where they could work. So apartheid officially um, was dismantled in 1991. And around that time, beginning in the early 1990s, um, you know, when I really began working on immigration and and border policing, I noticed that um, there were a number of academics, political figures, and activists who were using the term global apartheid. And they used this term... um, to describe, if you will, the you know the very profound international socioeconomic divisions um, that characterize the world, and these divisions, uh, they argued, often co- corresponded to conventional notions of of racial difference in term in addition to ethnic and national differences, and these differences um, resulted in very unequal life chances, 
right? And thus the ability to you know, realize basic human rights. Now, what was striking to me at least about those who were employing the phrase global apartheid in the early 1990s is almost none of them um, explored the link with restrictions on move, freedom of movement, residence, and work. And what made this really glaring was that the metaphor of apartheid, a global apartheid, again, as I suggested earlier, has its origins in South Africa, where control of movement and residence was a central component. Right? And so what global apartheid for me, uh, and for many others now, um, describes is not only uh, profound socioeconomic differences across global space, but how those socioeconomic differences uh, relate to very different abilities to move across global space. Who has passports that are powerful or weak? Who's able to get visas? Who are the people that have to take risks, uh, literally life and death risks, to cross national boundaries that they're officially um, denied the ability to do so? Right? These tend to be people from, you know, however you might want to put it, the so-called third world, the global south, uh, the formerly colonized parts of the world, whereas people like me, right, from the global north, from uh, wealthy capitalist countries, uh, often, you know, disproportionately white people, uh, are free to move with relative ease and security. And so global apartheid, you know, sort of captures this world in which... Um, boundaries are hardening, right? They're growing in strength physically and ideologically, at least with respect to, uh, you know, the officially rejected, the unauthorized, the illegalized, and of course to refugees as well, right? Or I should say particular types of refugees as we're learning in the in the current uh, Ukrainian crisis. Yeah. Um, could you give like a couple concrete examples of what that might look like? Sure. I mean, I remember... Um, I think it was around 2001, the New York Times had a, a really shocking image on its front page. It was a photo taken by um, a Spanish photographer named Javier Balus. And the photo showed two beachgoers sitting under an umbrella in Tarifa, Spain. And they were looking off in the distance at a dead body on the beach of presumably of a would-be uh, immigrant, presumably from somewhere in Africa. Right? The body had washed up onto the shore. And what this photo brilliantly and really painfully captured was the highly unequal access to nationalized spaces experienced by people across the globe. You know, for the beachgoers, we don't know if they're from Spain or from elsewhere, you know, presumably coming to Tarifa was a relatively e easy experience, you know, even if they were from a country other than Spain because of their socioeconomic status, uh, because of the nation state uh, in which they had citizenship, both of which informs their ability to move with authorization across global space. For the dead individual trying to traverse the treacherous Strait of Gibraltar, uh, as we learned, was literally a death-defying activity, right? And that unevenness, right, that inequality in the ability to move uh, is one of the most painful uh, manifestations of global apartheid. Uh, more recently, there was an article in the New York Times 
is entitled Two Refugees, Both on Poland's Borders, uh, But Worlds Apart. And the article tells the story of someone from the Sudan. Uh, his name was al and then someone from uh, the Ukraine named Katya. And let me just read a, a brief excerpt from the article. It says, al was punched in the face, called racial slurs, and left in the hands of a border god who, al said, brutally beat him and seemed to enjoy doing it. Katya, who's now in Poland, right, wakes up every day to a stocked fridge and fresh bread on the table, thanks to a man she calls a saint. Their disparate experiences underscore the inequalities of Europe's refugee crisis. They are victims of two very different geopolitical events, but are pursuing the same mission, escape from the ravages of war. As Ukraine presents Europe with its greatest surge of refugees in decades, many conflicts continue to burn in the Middle East and Africa. Depending on which war a person is fleeing, the welcome will be very different. You know, again, this is a, a story that sort of captures the realities of global apartheid. Now, in talking about apartheid, right, again, it, you know, it has its, it's had its, its roots in South Africa, where the racial classification was quite crude, right? It's on the, you know, the basis of who's black and who's white, who's not white, right? In terms of global apartheid, the reality is much more complicated. So if we look at the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, for example, and the policing apparatus, close to a majority of the Border Patrol agents, for example, are people of color, largely Latinx, you know, Latino agents, right, in, in the United States. Depending on who's the president or who's the director of Homeland Security, right, um, sometimes it's a person of color who's leading this. So to, to apply the notion of global apartheid uh, to something like the U.S.-Mexico border policing apparatus seems, on one, on one level, counterintuitive, right, because there is no formal process of racial segregation, right? There's no classification system that the United States uses, you know, you know, race, racial delineations to determine who can come in and who can't, right? But if we think about race and racism in a more flexible way, that, that race deals with sort of essentialized differences, right? Things that um, people really have very little control over. And those differences, you know, when they combine with power, um, lead to very different life and death circumstances. We find that nationality functions in a very similar way to race. W.E.B. Du Bois, the great um, civil rights and human rights um, activist in the um, early 1900s, you know, he, he wrote this famous essay. It was called The Souls of White Folks. And in the essay, he says that whiteness, and I'm quoting him here, is ownership of the earth forever and ever. Amen. And I think that's a really helpful way to think about racism. The positively racialized are the owners. The, the negatively racialized are the owned. And when we think about that in terms of mobility, right, those who enjoy hypermobility, easy mobility, Right, those who are able to fly or you know uh, drive across borders with ease, they tend to be the owners of the world, right? The disproportionately wealthy, the high consumers, those who have to hide, you know, in the in the holds of, of ships or take death-defying journeys across the arduous 
um, terrain of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, they're the owned, right? They're the non-white, effectively, in, in um, W.E.B. Du Bois's terms. And in that sense, um, they're racialized. That makes me think, too, of, you know, you, you have this debate about open borders, right? It's often a, a term that's stigmatized. You could bring it up, uh, say, in Washington, and you might get ridiculed on one side of the aisle, or it might be deemed impractical on the other. But when you start thinking of what you were, like what you're just illustrating there, one thing that always gets me is that there is an open border system for, you know, people with certain passports. If you think of the U.S., the United States military that crosses the border um, without, you know, at 35,000 feet, right? Like in a, in a plane, they don't have to deal with the on the ground. I'm wondering, uh, because I'm also thinking of a of this of an article that you wrote um, uh, in 2017, I believe, called "The Right to the World." And in that in that article, there's the right to mobility on one hand, but there's also the right to stay where you are, right? And I find that article to be an incredible antidote to to what you're talking about in global apartheid. And I'm wondering if you could, you know, talk a little bit about your article and and really what you're proposing. Right. If I could just say something about the observation you made about sort of how borders function. I mean, I think what's really interesting about what you said is it highlights that, you know, borders in many ways are filters. You know, what's a filter? Well, a filter catches that which is undesirable, you know, impurities, for example, like in the case of a water filter, and allows to pass through what is desirable. And that's the way the, you know, U.S.-Mexico border, among other borders, functions. And so this is one of the reasons why I uh, started thinking about uh, the need to expand rights. Now, if we look at, you know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is the basic uh, human rights document of all member states of the United Nations, right? Uh, The very first article of it says that all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood, that's the term they use, brotherhood. Now, we know there's a huge gap between this lofty rhetoric and actual practice, especially in terms of the movement of people across global space. And, you know, uh, refugees uh, experience this in a really uh, painful fashion all the time. We know that, you know, given this sort of lofty rhetoric, the, the you know, militarized and heavily policed borders are antithetical to human rights because what they do is they deny many people the ability to access spaces that are better resourced than the deprived spaces they're fleeing from. And as such, borders are effectively preventing people from realizing their human rights and in the process making them less than fully human. Now, how do we rectify this? Well, one way to rectify this is by expanding rights. And when I'm talking about rights here, I'm thinking about rights both as entitlements and, importantly, rights as a site of struggle. Now, we know rights are, uh, rights are struggled over all the time, you know, here in the United States, right? Freedom of assembly, the right to bear arms, um, the right to vote, right? These are all rights, but what these rights mean, what's the sort of the content in of these rights is something that people struggle over. Um, now, this concept of um, 
the right to the world in some ways grows out of uh, my engagement with what people call the right to the city. And the right to the city um, is something you hear a lot now. Its origins are in the late 1960s. This French uh, political theorist named Henri Lefebvre came up with it um, in the context of these large-scale protests that were taking place in Paris in, in 1968. And for Lefebvre and, you know, people who, you know, find favor with what he's doing, uh, the right to the city involves not only a right to inhabit the city, but a right to use its, its spaces and to exercise some sort of democratic uh, control over those spaces. Now, when Lefebvre and others are, are talking about the city, they mean the city in sort of broad terms. It's something that's not simply urban. It really means the spaces where we live. So for, you know, right to the city advocates, um, the city should be for all its inhabitants, all those who are already there. Now, that's really exciting and important. Uh, But the problem with that is that it doesn't speak to those who have not yet arrived in the city. For those who are outside the so-called city, those who would like to move to the city. In other words, the right to the city doesn't speak to um, matters of mobility between places, because what it assumes is that it's a right for those who are already present. And so we need something that's going to speak to that, you know, to the right to mobility and the right to access resources on a global basis. Now, we know that for people like me, Right? We're always accessing resources on a global basis, right? This the very technology that we're communicating now, right? Rests on uh, mined materials from all over the world, right? But this is determined by market forces rather than um, by one's status as a, as a human being. And so in order to have, for everyone to have a dignified life, there has to be some sort of egalitarian right to access global resources, right? And one of the most basic global resources is space. Uh, the right to live or you know access to work wherever one wants. And at the same time, given that um, what you know what drives uh, migration or refugee flows is complicated, right but a lot of it has to do with the fact that people have been deprived the right effectively to exist with dignity in the places that they call home. Right? And this gets to the right to stay that you referenced earlier. So the right to the world includes a right to mobility, right, a right to move, but it also must include a right to stay, which, you know, in terms of the U.S. foreign policy apparatus, U.S., you know, corporate activity abroad, right, it calls, in, you know, uh, U.S. consumption of resources that produce uh, a hugely disproportionate amount of the carbon dioxide emissions that are driving uh, climate breakdown, this has profound implications for um, our activities in places like the United States as well. So um, thinking about um, what you're laying out there, I'm we uh, in the in the United States, you know, you hear a lot or maybe you do or maybe you don't about, you know, ideas of immigration reform or comprehensive immigration reform and um you know what that means and sometimes they'll have documents that are like a thousand pages long you know stipulating this and that and the other thing um and that 
may or may not be a debate in the next couple of years here, you know, with the Biden administration. But like considering like everything that you're saying, like the right to the world, um, the scaffolding of global apartheid, um, if, if I were to consult you about comprehensive immigration reform, you know, and, and you were to take those concepts, what, what would you say? What might you imagine that would be? Well, I imagine it would be very similar to the regulation of space that exists between, I mean, you're in Arizona, I'm in New York, right? There's a border between those places, uh, but they're not borders of life and death, right? It's, these are borders that are relatively easy to cross. I mean, as long as there's difference, there are going to be borders. As long as there's a place called Mexico and a place called the United States, there's going to be a border. The question is, what is the nature of that border? Right? So the open borders doesn't mean the end of difference. What it means is that um, borders are no longer lines of life and death. And so, you know, in terms of so-called immigration reform, well, the bill I would put forth would be very brief, right? It would just put an end to the policing of borders and the policing of people in terms of their mobility. Now, of course, this seems like fantastic, fantastic and like fantasy-like, given the political climate in which we live. Um, and, you know, that makes me think about something um, Stan Cox wrote very recently on Tom Dispatch. I believe you know Stan Cox, or you're familiar with his writings, Todd, is that right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, and he's, you know, one of my favorite writers on uh, environmental issues. I mean, he makes connections with all sorts of things and trying to push us to think about um, environmental challenges in an expansive way. And in this recent piece on Tom Dispatch, he he was trying to, he was wrestling with, you know, how to address the intersecting crises of war, militarism, and, and climate change. He put forth some very radical prescriptions for how to deal with this. Right. And so this is what he says. He says, whatever the limitations of our moment, it's important to plant some mockers out there on the horizon of possibilities. When he says mockers, he's referring to these uh, radical prescriptions that he's, he's put forth. Let me quote him again. He says, that's the only way to show just how deep the policies needed to ensure our collective survival must go. However abhorrent they may be to those in power, in times like these, when the stakes are higher than ever, we have to push even harder for those mockers and maybe get at least a little closer to some of them, right? end quote. You know, if we could go back to this example of, of apartheid, you know, apartheid is now an international crime. Apartheid in South Africa was abhorrent, right? Uh, there was a huge movement internationally that was uh, played a significant role in overturning the apartheid system in South Africa. And as we know about debates um, going on about the you know, Israel-Palestine, right, the accusation of apartheid, right, he, groups like Human Rights Watch, uh, Amnesty International now, in addition to some Israeli uh, human rights organizations like Beth Selim, have accused the Israeli state of carrying out apartheid. But, you know, when, when people talk about apartheid these days, like they were just like they were talking about it in South Africa, they're only referring to apartheid within some sort of nation-state context, right? So, you know, going back to the past laws, right? It's considered a, a basic human rights violation if you deny people mobility within their, what's defined as their own country. But somehow, the very practices associated with apartheid, right, are acceptable 
if they take place between nation states, if they take place across global space. So why would it be, why should it be wrong only within the nation state context, but acceptable and defined as normal state practice, right, uh, on a global level, right? So apartheid, you know, so, so you know, the, the logic of border policing is powerfully embedded in our consciousness. Um, you know, Nandita Shama, the sociologist from the University of Hawaii, has talked about the territorializations of people's consciousness. It's striking how normalized border policing and all the violence associating with it has become. And I think apartheid, by, by, by characterizing it as apartheid-like, it helps to upset that normalization, while at the same time uh, highlighting just how violent and therefore unacceptable uh, that border policing is or should be. Do you think um, along those along those lines, you know, when you think of apartheid in um, South Africa or what's going on in Israel, Palestine, uh, there have been big movements, right? There is a big movement, uh, an uh, international movement that really pressured South Africa to end the apartheid system, and also like a divestment movement. And the same is the same you're seeing in Israel, Palestine. Um, do you think? You know, given that and some of some of the successes of those sorts of movements, especially in South Africa, um, that there's a potential for that in the terms of viewing the global apartheid, you know, in the border system, the global border system that might have some sort of impact. Um, How do you see an eventual and this will be the last question, an eventual way for for either this to end or for, you know, when we look at the world, it's being built, the borders just keep being built up and built up and built up and and to reverse, maybe reverse that trend. Well, you know, I wish I had a simple answer to that question. I mean, it's an important question. It's, it's, it's one we need to grapple with. But clearly, you know, the answer to that is only something that can come through collective struggle, right? You know, we see indications, you know, small signs at times when there's some sort of recognition of the inherently unjust nature, the apartheid-like nature of global orders. Like that article I shared with you from the New York Times that's looking at the, you know, how a Sudanese refugee is being treated versus a Ukrainian refugee, right? But we're far from any sort of uh, broad recognition um, I mean, particularly in the wealthy parts of the world, right? The parts of the world that police their borders most heavily um, of the inherently violent nature and the unjust nature of these of these controls. You know, that's why it's it's so important that we 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 put an alternative analysis forward. I mean, unless I mean, you know, your question is: Is there potential for change? And of course, one has to think, you know, that there's potential for change. Otherwise, we would just give up doing what we do, right? Whether that potential will be realized um, depends on all of us. And in the face of climate change, something you've written a lot about, Todd, and you know, and the the walls of, of violence that are associated with with climate change, um, that's going to push the discussion um, in all sorts of ways. Uh, good and bad, right? And the the it's 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 upon us. It's 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 our responsibility um, to to make hard hitting critiques, 
um, to not normalize, to, um, to not accept um, the underlying logics that nation-state leaders put forth in justifying what should be unjustifiable. Right? And that is apartheid, whether it's apartheid practiced in South Africa or, or it's apartheid practiced on a global level. And it's only by doing that that we have any hope, I think, of, of realizing a fundamentally different world. Again, whether we'll realize that world or not is, a, is, a, is an open question, um, but we have to at least uh, struggle to try to, to, to achieve that. Well, thank you so much. So we'll leave it at that. That's a, that's a great note to leave it on. So thank you. Thank you, Todd. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This interview was edited by me, Lily Clark. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform. It'll help other people find the show. You can read and listen to more local border reporting on our website, theborderchronicle.com.